Well, please join me in 1 Corinthians 15, and let's do enjoy the Word of God together. This is a passage that I believe is one that calls for a lot of soul-searching, a lot of challenging questions will arise from this text. And so brace yourself for that, invite that in yourself, <clears throat> that we might all be aligned more fully with Christ as we leave in a moment. But some questions as you find your place in 1 Corinthians 15. First of all, are you influencing others or are you being influenced by others? And in reality, both of those statements are true, right? We, we are influencing others for good or for bad. And we are being influenced by others, other people, other things, whether for good or for bad. So maybe a question we could follow up on is this. How are you influencing others? And how are other people influencing you? Or this question, who is influencing you? Are you being selective and who has a position of influence in your life? Or are you just taking anything in? Paul's concerned about these Corinthians. And who is influencing them? False teachers had come among them. This church that Paul had years earlier planted. Paul loved this church. Deeply concerned because of false teachers coming in. And there were unhealthy members in the church using a negative influence on the other believers. It concerned him. So Paul here in chapter 15 has been reminding them of the truth of the resurrection. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus, but this coming resurrection of all who have believed in Jesus at the end. Let's continue in our text. 1 Corinthians 15, now picking up in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul begins this section with that word otherwise, and he's really linking back up to what he began talking about in verse 20, this verse. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Paul begins to continue to unpack that with this idea that without the resurrection, the Christian life makes no sense. Without the resurrection, the Christian life makes no sense. And he gives one illustration from there in Corinth. He asks, why are some of you Corinthians being baptized for some dead people? That's a strange verse, verse 29. In fact, such an interesting verse that some of you, when you heard we were going to go into 1 Corinthians, I bet it entered your mind. All right, we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 months ago. You probably thought, you know, at some point Jim's going to come to chapter 15, verse 29, that baptism for the dead passage. What's he going to do with that? By the way, I knew that was coming too. And so we have come to it at last. A very interesting verse. Look at it again. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And truthfully, we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to there. One scholar said it this way. The greatest difficulty with this verse is that there are no other biblical references to anything like a baptism for the dead. Explanations for this verse are varied. 
By the way, another commentator said there are over 200 possible interpretations of that verse. But here he just says the explanations for this verse are varied and none is convincing. Perhaps the most likely explanation is that Paul identified a practice of which he did not approve. He referred to the practitioners in the third person, people, rather than first person, we, or the second person, you. Do notice that in your text. He doesn't say, we do this, you do this. He says, some people are, are doing this. So he goes on to say, if this outlook is correct, then Paul pointed out the inconsistency between this practice and the denial of the general resurrection. He asked what sense it would make for people to, to deny the final resurrection while practicing vicarious baptism for the dead. So one possibility is this was a uniquely Corinthian practice. Again, nowhere else anything like this mentioned in the scripture. So it seems to be something that just some were doing in Corinth. Paul, Paul neither promotes it or right here doesn't even rebuke it. He's keeping his focus on his point about the resurrection. Another scholar said this, he says, I'm not sure what baptism for the dead means, but I am sure what it does not mean. Based on Paul's other writings and the rest of the New Testament, this cannot mean that a living Christian can be baptized on behalf of a dead non-Christian and somehow change that dead person's status from non-Christian to Christian. So here's a good a moment for us to illustrate how we interpret scripture. We come to a passage that's interesting. Oh, I, don't, I don't know what to do with verse 29. Well, how do we handle that? How do we appropriately interpret scripture? Well, first of all, whenever you're reading scripture, you want to read it in its context. And my goodness, we've been doing that, right? We've been in 1 Corinthians for months. We've come verse by verse through it. So here we come to this very interesting verse in its context. And so we take it on. Here's another principle that you always want to interpret those passages that are less clear with all of the passages that are very clear. So that principle of interpreting scripture with scripture. So we come to verse 29, we say, I'm not exactly sure what Paul's doing there. Even the scholars who studied it for, for generations scratched their heads, not exactly sure. But I love that, that we can go, but I know it can't mean a whole array of things. Taking the totality of the scripture, it can't mean things. So, so I bring this up in, well, because it's in our text, but also it's very pertinent for us because uh, those who are Mormons have made a lot out of that one verse. In fact, in that temple down the street, there is in there a baptistry and its primary purpose is baptisms for the dead. And we're going to see together as we just talk about that. There's, there's no way what they're doing is anything what Paul here is alluding to here. So Mormons have made this a central practice of their faith. This is some obscure thing that's deep in their books. But Joseph Smith invented this teaching of what they do back in 1840. And by the way, I spent some time on the official Mormon websites uh, this week. Just I want to be fair to what their position is. And by the way, even when you spend time on their websites, you think, oh my goodness, this is as strange and heretical as I knew it was. But Mormons have, a, have multiple errors here, but they teach, by the way, on baptism that their Mormon baptism is essential for anyone to have a good afterlife. By the way, Mormons, in the midst of all their false teaching, they have an idea of levels of heaven and all of that. So again, unscriptural, but they, they have the idea if you're going to have a good afterlife in one of these positive levels, uh, you're going to have to have a Mormon baptism. So again, the idea that you need to do the rituals, this is, this is, if you're going to qualify yourself for one of these heavens, you better do the rituals. And so this is a works-based faith. 
Now, their baptism for the dead is the idea that you as a Mormon could be baptized in the name of one of your beloved relatives who's passed away. You're going to be baptized in their name in, in a temple like the one down the street so that your dead loved one's spirit that's still kind of out there in, in a, maybe a negative afterlife, you'll ba be baptized in their place so that that loved one will have an opportunity. That spirit will have an opportunity to receive your baptism you did for them and then accept the Mormon message and then now have a better afterlife. So that's their thinking. This, by the way, this is why Mormons are really into genealogical research. They feel like they're doing a work of service for their deceased relatives. Well, let, I can learn their names, people who didn't know about Mormonism. And so I'll, I'll get baptized for them. So they have a chance to get saved in a sense after death all these years later. So here's what we know. Verse 29 cannot mean any of that. First of all, there's no work you can do to be saved. Not even your baptism. You can't, you can't even try to save yourself by you getting baptized for yourself in this life. How are we saved? Through our faith in Jesus alone. We're trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. All of my faith has to be in what he did and nothing I then later contribute to that. I just need to trust in him. And we know from scripture, there's nothing we can do to move a deceased person from a bad afterlife, from hell, into heaven. There's nothing you can do. There's no waiting ground. There's no purgatory that they're in waiting on you to do something for them. That's completely unbiblical. Remember, you remember Jesus talked about the rich man and Lazarus and there's, there's nothing to do. There's a great chasm fixed between heaven and, and hell. There's no crossing between the two. There's nothing you can do after a person has passed, passed away. So how could my baptism help another person? Well, our Christian biblical baptism can help, but the other living people. So last week at 9.30, Lily Perkins was baptized and uh, she chose to read her testimony at 9.30. She had it laminated and from our baptistry, she chose a, a young girl, elementary age girl. She wanted to read her testimony. Now, could that help somebody be saved? Yes. Those who are alive and in the room could see this little girl's example of turning from her sin, trusting in Jesus. And they too, while they're living could put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's why we love public baptisms for people to choose Christ. But you can't do anything to save a person who's already died. Their opportunity for salvation is already passed. So, so you say, Jim, you're really, you're really hammering on the Mormons. Do you hate the Mormons? No, we don't hate anybody. We don't hate our Mormon neighbors, but listen, I would tell you they're lost. They're lost. And, and so don't be misled by the smiling faces and their their websites and social media presence, really well done, but it's error. I'm asking you to pray for your Mormon neighbors. When you drive by that sad temple, uh, realize a lot of untruth is happening there. They have not believed in the biblical Jesus. They haven't trusted in Christ. And so pray for them. And I would ask you to share the gospel with them, the true gospel. Point them to the death of Jesus for their sins, his burial and his resurrection from the dead. And so the biblical role of baptism then is we just on this topic of baptism then is for us to be baptized after putting our faith in Jesus in being baptized. We are declaring the, the gospel that I once was apart from Christ. I was, I'm buried. The old me is buried and gone in Christ, but I've been raised up in Christ to walk in newness of life. And I do want other people to know Jesus. So I would ask you this. Have you been baptized? Baptism cannot save you, but you still should be baptized 
We don't find an example otherwise in the Scripture. We are to repent, trust in Jesus, and be baptized. And so if you've not been baptized, talk to us about that afterwards today. Or use that connection card and say, I need to be baptized. I anticipate somebody might say, well, I'm embarrassed. It's been a long time since I became a Christian, and I'd be embarrassed to be baptized now. Can you imagine how much more, ba- more embarrassed you're going to be five years from now? If you put it off another five years, 10 years, you should be baptized to declare publicly your faith in Jesus Christ. It is important. It just can't save you. And it certainly can't save anybody who's already passed away. So Paul's point here is this, that our Christian lives make no sense if there is no resurrection of the dead. So he gives that example. But how about this one? Paul makes this point. Why are we willing to live dangerous lives, sacrificing safety and comfort, if there's no resurrection from the dead. That's verses 30 through 32 again. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul here describes his suffering as a servant of God in three descriptive ways. He says, we're in danger every hour as followers of Christ. He said, I die every day. There's a sense in which I'm up against death. I'm pretty sure this is the day I'm going to die every day in his service to Christ. And then he gives an occasion where he says, I, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. We'll talk about that in just a second. So Paul, indeed, if you think about his life, he lived a very dangerous life as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He even enumerated some of the dangers when he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 11, listen to the word danger that's going to come up here. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following. Paul writes as the Spirit guided him. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 49 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Listen to the dangers. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure and apart from other things. There's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety anxiety for all the churches. Even in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he lets you know that he was willing to face all that danger because of his confidence in the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Listen to this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So how could Paul face a life of dying daily as he described it? Because he was confident in, yes, the resurrection of Christ who died for his sins, but also this coming resurrection for all who have believed in him. Paul also gives a reference to beasts here. One translation refers them as wild beasts. So what's, what's he talking about there that happened to him in Ephesus? I don't believe he's talking about actual animals, but certainly vicious persecutors there. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19, perhaps later, but there's the occasion where a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
an idol maker. He was incensed because so many people were leaving their lives of idolatry and putting their faith in Jesus Christ instead. He was offended for their God Artemis, and also he was worried about his own livelihood. And so all the idol makers were upset. They incited a, a riotous crowd there in Ephesus. If you read for, uh, in Acts chapter 19 later today, they were chanting things for hours. They were unhinged. They were so livid, dragging people in front of the arena, some associates of Paul. Paul wanted to go in there. They're telling him, don't you go in there. Finally, somebody calmed the crowd. Craziness ensued. And Paul look, looks back on that and says, I faced wild beasts there in Ephesus. And you know, it wasn't just that day. There will be these same angry people that he would face on a daily basis. And so I would ask you this question. Have you ever been persecuted? Have you ever been persecuted by several people? Have you ever been persecuted by dozens of people? Maybe hundreds of people? Back in 2015, I won't go into the details here. We went through something like that, a, a, an inaccurate news story and all that. And and it unleashed on us for about three weeks, just craziness, craziness, anger, vicious stuff coming inbound. And, and I remember there was a moment where that was happening. I thought, hey, I think I can reason with these people, you know, uh, just for a moment. I thought that if, if I could just explain our position here, I can't really do that in the news. But if I could just tell that would diffuse all this. And then you realize, no, 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 I can't I can't wade into that. This is this is like dealing with wild beasts, just just anger and mob mentality. There's just no reasoning with such a thing. You ever watch the news and you see maybe on a university campus, sometimes on the streets, but maybe somebody's presenting on a college campus, a biblical worldview about some topic, and you'll find pagan students won't have a civil dialogue. So many times they will shout down the one who's speaking, you know, so no civil dialogue. We, we will shout you down. You don't have a reason to talk if we disagree with you. Sometimes they go beyond that. We're going to go to vandalism. We will destroy your property because you don't agree with us. This is wild beasts. Or we will actually assault you because you, you dare to say things we don't agree with. This is the type of mentality that we might run into. But here's, here's what we're reminded from our scriptures, that we cannot act that way in return. We have a savior. We have a leader who tells us you do not return evil for evil. So the other side has no master that tells them that. They're led by the evil one. And so they're going to act like it. We're children of God, though we hate to be mistreated and all that. We're not going to be able to return evil for evil. Jesus told us that when we're insulted, what are we to do? We are to turn the other cheek, meaning that they might insult you again. And you and I, even as we sometimes receive abuse, we cannot lose our confidence in the gospel. We do believe that Jesus died for our sins and their sins that Jesus was buried. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And there's a resurrection to come for everybody who has believed in him. We don't lose our confidence there. So the question again, why would Paul endure all this danger and all these beatings and everything if the gospel is not true, if the resurrection's not true? So let's ask ourselves this. Are we foolish to believe the gospel and to follow these scriptures, even with increasing hostility? Are we foolish to send missionaries to dangerous places in the world and to go as missionaries to dangerous places. Are we foolish? No, not at all. Because the gospel is true. Because of the resurrection of Jesus and our coming resurrection, if we are in him, Jesus was raised from the dead. He's our greatest treasure. And nobody, no matter what they do to us, can take him from us or us from him. And nobody can steal our joy in him. And even if they take our physical bodies, what's the scripture say? 
to live is Christ and to die is gain. So they take your life. They've just given you more Jesus. You get to go and be with him. The resurrection gives us confidence here. And then this, Paul makes this point. If there's no gospel, if there's no resurrection, we should just live like pagans, just seeking entertainment. That's verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here Paul quotes a Greek poet just presenting the pagan worldview. You're just going to eat and drink and then you die. Just live for your temporary pleasures. Contrasted with our biblical worldview, no, the, the gospel is true. Therefore, I can give bold service to Christ no matter the cost. And I want to ask you this. Which life are you living? Are you living a pagan life even as a professing Christian? Are you simply living for eating and drinking? Is there any evidence of your confidence in the resurrection showing up in your life? Is there any evidence of your joy in the gospel of grace showing up in your life? We asked Paul that question. We said, oh my goodness, I see evidence. He really believes this. This confidence in the gospel, his joy in a risen savior is showing up in his life where he'll risk everything to enjoy that good news and to share that good news, whatever the cost may be. These two aims are diametrically opposed. You're, you're likely living one or the other of these. You're either serving the Lord courageously, arranging your life around the service of the Lord, or you're arranging your life to serve your appetites for comfort, for convenience, for pleasure, for entertainment. If there's little or no service to God in your life, but you arrange your life around things like TV shows, can't, I can't serve because there's this Netflix series that I need to binge coming up. I can't, I can't serve because of these sporting obligations that I have. Listen, it's true. We, there's a place for leisure. There's a place for recovery from hard work and nothing wrong with days off and some vacations. But if your life, no, that is my life. It's, it's one quest for just taking it easy. That is living a pagan life. That is, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. So are you living a pagan life? Is your life all about things like sports? Watching it, arranging your life around it, chasing it? Have you turned down opportunities to serve Jesus because of your activities? I would serve, but I'm so busy with my hobbies. They, I just don't know how I could possibly plug in because I've got to go do these recreational things. You're living by a pagan philosophy. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul said our, our lives, the lives of disciples makes no sense if the resurrection's not true. And then he, then he makes this point. He just says this to him, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. My grandmother years ago used to say, you're known by the company you keep. I still remember that. But Paul makes a point even bigger than that. This is, this is more than your reputation because you hang around people. That There's a danger to having company that Paul here calls bad company. This, this can actually bring ruin into your life. And certainly there's application for all of us. Am I surrounding myself with people that, that the word of God will say, this is bad company and it's corrupting me. It's ruining me. But it may not even be your immediate friend group. You might be tapping so much into the culture at large that your bad company is the entertainment and the things you're pumping into your mind. Tom Elif, 
he quoted his mother. I was listening to a podcast this week. Tom Elliff was being interviewed and he quoted his mother. He said, you can know a man by the books he reads, the friends he keeps, the Lord he serves. And then he added, and the music he listens to. Think about that a second. Is that true? Same idea that Paul here teaches. You can know a man by the books he reads, the friends he keeps, the Lord he serves, and the music he listens to. Scripture says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So I'll ask the question I asked at the beginning. Who is influencing you? Who is shaping your morals, your views, your lifestyle choices? Who are you following on social media? So many of them call themselves influencers. So are you letting any of them influence you? Who are you watching on YouTube? What are you watching on Netflix? Who are the authors that you're reading? Who are the, who are the artists that you're listening to? And then just ask this question. Are these influencers stirring up in me a greater passion for Christ or a greater passion to follow my flesh away from Christ? So we can say it this way, bad company, even in your earphones and on your screens can ruin good morals. Somebody might say, nah, I, I can handle it. I can put any manner of things in my head. It's just not going to shape me. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. But I believe the context here especially is the local church. Paul is writing to these Corinthians and he's worried about them because again, the false teachers have come in and they're teaching things that are not so. There are unhealthy church members there and the bad company can even be in, the, in a church. In fact, remember back in chapter five, there was a man in such immorality that Paul said, you have to expel the immoral man. And back in chapter five, verse 15, verse 13, rather, it says, expel the evil person from among you. Uh, make sure that if you're in a church and there are those not healthy, that that's not bad company for you. You want to influence them to Christ and faithfulness. Don't let them influence you otherwise. We're to spur each other on to faithfulness, not drag each other away from Christ. Philippians 3, 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So it's possible in a church like ours, as many people here, you might find yourself around people who are modeling for you a kind of grace where faithfulness doesn't matter. You may have had people tell you that, you know, it doesn't matter. We're, we're saved by grace. You don't have to worry about obedience anymore. And that's just not so. That's not so at all. Bad company can ruin your morals. And if your morals are ruined, you are ruining yourself. So what's the solution to that? Paul gives us the solution here in three statements. He says, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by false teachers. Don't be deceived by disobedient professing Christians. In fact, Paul back in chapter six had already exhorted them. Don't be deceived in the realm of morals. Do you remember this? First Corinthians six, nine and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's that phrase again. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Paul says, here's your remedy. Don't be deceived. Here's another part of the remedy. Wake up from your drunken stupor 
as is right. So we say, what's Paul writing about there? Well, it's possible that some of these Corinthians have become so lax in their faithfulness that they indeed were participating in drunkenness. In fact, remember, we were back and we looked at how they were misusing the Lord's Supper. Apparently, some of them were getting even drunk at those meals around the Lord's Supper they had. But this also could be just metaphorically, in addition to some of that laxness, there could be those just kind of sleepwalking through their Christian life. He says, you, you need to wake up from that. And then don't you love the next part of this? He says, stop sinning. Don't go on sinning. Again, some have a, a misunderstanding that, you know, under grace now, we don't think about sin or obedience to Christ at all anymore. No, that's, that's not true. Look, in this very chapter where Paul's been all about the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, he gives us a verse like this. Hey, stop sinning. Don't keep on sinning. And as we talked about, sin's harmful to us. That's why God doesn't want us sinning. It harms other people. So, hey, stop doing that now that you belong to me. That's not how you're being saved. The gospel saves you. Jesus saves you. But now as a saved one, stop sinning. And so perhaps the Lord will bring to mind something in your life where you recognize, I have been doing some things I should not. Here's a simple word from the scriptures in the new covenant. Hey, stop, stop doing that. And you can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can ask a brother or sister to come alongside and help you to walk in obedience. So believers, let's wake up. Let's sober up. Let's pay attention. Let's stop being deceived. Let's stop disobeying the Lord. And notice this, Paul is very concerned that some in the church at Corinth are not saved at all. Notice what he says. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Every church knows it, that there are those who became members. And in an eventuality, you recognize that I don't think they knew Jesus after all. And Paul says there's a shame in that, that could be in the community, make a false profession of faith. It can happen. This past week, I was in a conference and I heard a speaker say this. It was very interesting. He says, a mature church has a lot of immature people in it. So I had to hang on for the rest of that one. That doesn't make sense. But a mature church has a lot of immature people in it because the mature are reproducing and bringing in unbelievers who are becoming new believers who are currently immature and growing. Well, that's true, isn't it? So in your church today, as you're leaving, you might run into somebody who's very rude and acts like a baby Christian. And uh, you shouldn't conclude, well, that's a terrible church because they've got immature people there. No, it could be a sign of health. Some new people are there and they are still babies and growing in Christ. And so that could be a good sign. But the shame is if a person remains in immaturity year after year, not growing in Christ, decade after decade, still acting like an infant in Christ, that would be a shame. Oh, but the greater shame is a person who hears the gospel year in, year out, and not believe, not be born again. It's a shame. And I know that life, and many of you know my testimony, that was my life. From the age of 13 until I was genuinely saved by Christ, at 17, I was an unsaved church member. How do I know? Well, I know by looking at my life, I looked like everybody else on Sunday, but from Monday to Saturday, I lived a pagan life with no remorse. I could live that, that double life until Jesus saved me at 17. And then I can't explain. He, he made an inside out transformation that's still ongoing. But I want to ask you to look at your life this morning. Are you living a resurrection life in Christ with a new purpose, a new passion, a new direction? Or are you living the old life of death? Your life is just eat, just drink, 
and then die. Your philosophy, if you put it in words, would be, let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Believer, let's wake up. Let's stop sinning. Let's recommit ourselves to Christ. There are people in your life this week, they're going to need to see Jesus in you. There are people in your life going to need to hear about Jesus through you of his death for their sins and his burial and resurrection. Let's believers, let's, let's wake up to that calling. But if you're here and you're not yet a believer, can I tell you, we are so glad you're here. We don't expect people to have it all together when they come here. We believe that God has brought you here so that you might seek him, that you might be still, as we heard earlier, and know who he is. And so here's a moment for you. We're so glad you're here. Cross over from one who's been chasing all the other things. Now you know what Jesus has done for you. Would you today pivot toward Jesus? Put all of your faith in Jesus. He's the only one who can save you. He lived perfectly. He died for your sins. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. And the promise of scripture, if you will believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's bow our heads together. I want to give you a moment to ask Jesus to save you. That's how you do this. You, you might say something like this to him from your heart. Lord, I recognize Jesus, what you did for me. You took my sins upon you. You died for my sins on the cross along with the others. And you were buried. You were raised from the dead. And I'm, no, I'm going to no longer trust in me and how nice I can be. I'm not going to trust any rules I've tried to keep. Jesus, I'm trusting in you. And I want you to be the new leader of my life. You take over. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Now let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for some who are making that decision today. God, bring them all the way into your family. Open their eyes to who you are. Raise them from the dead spiritually. And then, Lord, for those of us who have known you for a long time, keep us from apathy Keep us from being deceived and chasing lesser things. Lord, help us to live resurrection lives as we anticipate even this coming resurrection of our bodies. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.